You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Daniel. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Daniel chapter 7, and Lord, we just, uh, as we read this chapter that is so accurately prophetic, and as we get to see Jesus in the Old Testament uh, in glory, as we see the Father and the Son there, uh, it's just specifically, Lord, it just, um, it just prompts our heart to praise and to worship, Lord. I pray that tonight, just as your word goes forth, that, um, Lord, we would just have such a, a striking fear in our hearts of who you are, such a reverence, uh, Lord, that it would just change our lives, it would change our mindsets, uh, Lord, it would just change just our, our focus and our vision and our day-to-day lives, Lord. Um, Lord, as we just know you're coming soon, Lord, our hearts just cry, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And um, Lord, we, just, we long for just the final portions of Daniel 7 to take place. And so we just pray that you would just uh, get things rocking and rolling, Lord, uh, so that we can see you face-to-face soon. Uh, We just love you, and we love you as we study your word. What a privilege it is to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are done with the first six chapters of Daniel. That's probably quite obvious, but it's also important uh, because those first six chapters are really biographical, uh, specifically pertaining to the life of Daniel, since he was a 15-year-old boy until he was about an 86-year-old man. We've seen a lot of his life biography. Um, But now for the next about six chapters, we're going to see less biography and more prophecy. We're going to see the books be much more specific in their prophecies. So uh, those uh, first or these final six chapters are just so incredible because uh, to Daniel, as he wrote them, they were future prophecy, uh, and now in 2011, we look back and we see fulfilled prophecy. And so when we see fulfilled prophecy, we get to just say, yes, Lord, don't we? We get to say, man, the, the promises of the Lord are yes and amen, and everything that he says is going to come to pass. So it's such an exciting thing to study Bible prophecy, and I don't know if you guys have ever been to prophecy updates or listened to those, but they're pretty, pretty exciting things. Uh, we're going to have a mini prophecy update uh, here tonight a little bit. So, <laughs> um, But uh, much of these last six chapters deal with end times. Now, as we read chapter 7, you guys have probably read it before looking out in the crowd. Most of you have some sort of an idea of what Daniel 7 is about. But uh, some have believed that this chapter is actually a prophetic description of the National Football League, or the NFL, in that we have the Lions, and the Bears, and the Eagles, and the Jaguars, and the Saints, and the dreadful and terrible beast, which some have believed to be the Buffalo Bills, and even the Oilers as we're going to see Greece in this chapter. So uh, that's what some believe. I'm not quite there yet in my uh, exegesis. But, um, you know, in this chapter, we're going to see 2,500 years, a broad spectrum of global domination. Everything that goes clear back to the day of Daniel, uh, clear up through the day of Jesus, and then even, I believe, up until our day, 
uh, in the revived Roman Empire that we see happening right now. Okay, so uh, it's exciting. 2,500 years of prophecy um, up through the last days. Now, Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 1.16, that we don't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter says, and we heard this voice on the mountain uh, come from heaven when we were with him. And so we have, Peter says, the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So um, Peter just talks about everything clear, including Daniel, that the prophets spoke of. It's not a bunch of crazies just writing something as they were high on some opiate, you know. But, you know, the Holy Spirit moved these men and carried them along. uh, And they wrote down as they were moved. And so that's why we have such spectacularly accurate prophecies. And Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 10 says, remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet even done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So as we come to worship the Lord in the word tonight, we know that that God that we worship knows the end from the beginning and the ancient things from things that haven't taken place yet. And so, uh, you know, not one religion in the world can match the accurate prophecies of those Old Testament Hebrew uh, prophets. They try, and we even have psychics in this world today that try. And, uh, you know, there's a couple guys that, you know, they they might make it to first base in in their shot at stabbing at future, but then they always fall short. And nothing even begins to hold a candle uh, to the Hebrew prophets that we have uh, in the scriptures here. So, um, just as we begin chapter 7, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, my phone just went off, and it was the sound of someone playing Scrabble with me. So let's see who's not at church tonight, and who's playing Scrabble. Oh, it's my mother-in-law. So, she's off the hook. She lives in Klamath Falls. (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, so Belshazzar is kind of, the, it gives us the time frame of when this chapter is written. Remember, it, it's, not, uh, it's not really an order with the book of Daniel in that it's in chapter 7 here. But it tells us that it's in 553 BC. That's when King Belshazzar, who was the king during the whole writing on the wall thing. You remember that from a couple chapters ago. But that gives us the idea that chapters 7 and 8 fit chronologically between chapters 4 and 5. And you just might make a note of that in your Bible. Um, But this was about 14 years before Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel's going to be given four specific visions. One in chapter 7 tonight, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and then one that covers chapters 10 through 12. And this chapter, it's been called sweeping and very comprehensive And chapters 9 through 12 are said to just kind of go and fill in the gaps. Um, So one of the Jewish scribes who would copy the Old Testament out considered chapter 7 to be the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. 
So let's dig into it, right? Um, verse 1, this was the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Now, this starts out similar to the uh, night before Christmas, only instead of Daniel being snuggled, uh, snug in his bed with visions of sugar plums dancing in his head, uh, he's snuggled warm in his bed and he has these visions of crazy psycho beasts that are going to actually freak him out and cause him quite a bit of turmoil and quite a bit of, of trouble, actually. But uh, it says here that he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. So it's interesting to know as we read it, uh, this isn't all of his dream. It's just kind of the main facts of it. So it was a long night for him that night. Uh, Daniel spoke saying, uh, I saw in my vision by night. So he has this vision, he has a dream while he's sleeping, and I like that he wrote down this dream and he told the main facts because uh, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and they began to speak in tongues, they began to prophesy, the outside critics said that these guys are drunk with wine. Peter got up and at the beginning of his sermon he said, you know, men and brethren, listen up, these guys aren't drunk with wine, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, but he says this, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. When Joel said, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. So the exciting thing about that is, you know, we look at Daniel and we go, man, what an awesome guy to get these dreams and these visions. And he is, right? But in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the believer, um, they too have dreams and visions and prophesy and have these gifts, these spiritual gifts. And so maybe you're one of those people, we all have the conversation when we're around the table, right, about dreams that we've had, and then one person says, I never remember my dreams. And one one's, oh, I always, almost every night I wake up and I remember my dreams, you know, and I'm one of those guys that remembers his dreams almost every night. I'll wake up and I'll, I'll have some recollection of it. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you're someone that remembers your dreams, to start writing them down, like Daniel did here. Write them down, pray about them. I know Don's a guy that has some very, very vivid dreams, and I've prayed with Don over interpretations of those. But maybe you're here, you're a dreamer. Write those down. Write those down, or you have a vision. Write them, pray about them, and we're going to see Daniel go and talk to somebody about it. Go and talk to someone about it, a brother in the Lord, and pray about it. Seek an interpretation. I think the Lord in the last days, or I think we're in the last days. I think biblically you can tell that. Um, young men, old men, dreams and visions, maidservants, prophesying. Okay, so uh, I like that Daniel wrote it down and that he speaks of this, that I saw in my vision by night that the four winds of heaven, behold, the four winds of heaven we're stirring up the great sea, probably the Mediterranean Sea here. And Revelation 17 tells us that uh, the sea that you see in chapter 17 is of uh, the multitudes of nations, tribes, and tongues. So perhaps it's the same thing here, that out of this multitude of nations comes these four different beasts that we read of in verse 3. But Isaiah 57 verse 20 tells us that um, it's lost humanity, and it very well can all correlate together. The nations and the tribes, lost humanity. As Isaiah says, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up 
mire, and dirt. Uh, so probably the nations is what's being symbolized here uh, as the winds come and sweep through and move the nations or move the, the lost people um, groups there. And uh, verse 3, four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from another. And so as we go through these four beasts, we're going to parallel them from the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. And hopefully you have some idea of the, the image that he saw uh, where he saw um, a great chiefly statue uh, in chapter 2. And this statue was just, it was troubling. It was, you know, it was much like the dream that uh, Daniel had here. But uh, this, this statue had a head of gold, all right? Um, and that was a representation, Daniel said. It's a picture of the Babylonian Empire, all right? And then it gets lesser in value uh, in, in an even, um, but a little stronger in strength. Yeah, uh, chest and, uh, help me out here, arms and shoulders of silver, which was a representation of the Medo-Persian Empire who were going to come and take over Babylon. Then there was a belly and thigh of bronze on this statue, and that was a picture of the Grecian Empire, right? Uh, then what was there? Legs of iron, right? Picture of the Roman Empire, okay? Just kind of in succession. These were who would rule over Israel. And then finally, at the base of the statue, feet that were partly clay and partly iron, right? And, uh, and then what happened in his dream? Remember that Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands. And that stone came and started pulverizing this statue so that it just became just a mass of, of uh, dust and chaff that the wind just like carried away. And then it says that that stone that was cut without hands became a mountain and covered the whole world. Is a picture of the kingdom of God who just would conquer all these other kingdoms, they'd, be, they'd just totally fade away in the sight of Jesus and his kingdom would stand. So with that all in mind, if you haven't been here for that, you're, to, you're probably totally confused, but we're going to just parallel that dream of that statue with all the different elements, mostly metallic, with this dream that Daniel has that's for beasts, not for metals, but for beasts. Interesting to note that from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, just these kingdoms were just, just an element, right? But from the Lord's perspective, these are, these are flesh, these are bone, these are beasts. These are things with hearts and minds and life within them. And so it says there that uh, four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from another. And verse 17 is going to tell us that these beasts are each different kings or different kingdoms. So, um, verse uh, four, we see that the first was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. Now, these uh, kingdoms, you know, it's similar to uh, United Kingdom, it's a picture of a lion. It's kind of symbolized by that. America, we're kind of the eagle, right? You know, the bald eagle, it's like our symbol. 
um, and, uh, you know, Russia is a symbol of a bear, just sim- sim- uh, similar to back then where even archaeologists will say that certainly Babylon was represented by a lion with wings. And so, you know, Daniel has this dream. Perhaps this was the easier thing to kind of get out of the dream. Okay, I saw a lion. It had wings and this and that, and this is what happened. Um, Jeremiah prophesied of Babylon, um, and he pictured it as a lion. And uh, these eagle wings represent speed throughout Scripture. Um, But notice these wings were plucked off. And this lion thing was lifted from the earth, made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And, you know, perhaps this is speaking of the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, where once he was like a a beast, um, but the Lord had to actually make him a beast. Remember chapter 4, where for seven years, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled to live like an animal, to basically crawl on all fours, and his fingernails grew out like eagle's claws and his hair grew really long like an oxen's hair got all matted down you know he ate grass with the wild burrows you know and uh sounds like uh you know some of the hygiene going on around pride but no, i'm totally kidding um but you know that was happening to nebuchadnezzar because he was too proud the lord humbled him and so you know either we walk in humility or the lord will drive us down in humiliation And Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that the hard way till after seven years, the Lord basically picked him back up uh, out of this state as Nebuchadnezzar synonymously humbled himself and he had a new heart placed in him. You know, I personally think we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday and that he'd humbled himself before the mighty hand of God. I think you read that in his repentance in chapter four. So, um, So this first beast, this lion, it's a picture of Babylon, and it's really not that hard to figure that out as you read the rest of the chapter, and as you know, uh, the rest of the chapters in Daniel as well. Uh, Originally the head of gold, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar in that kingdom there. Verse 5, suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, arise and devour much flesh. So the second beast just as that next kingdom in the succession of who ruled over Israel. And that would be the Medo-Persian Empire or the uh, shoulders and arms of silver. And the king that ruled over there was Cyrus and also Darius. Now, it was like a bear, uh, which speaks of an intensity and strength. Uh, And I just recently was watching the news and I heard about four teens who are on a survival trip up in Alaska. And for 30 days, these four guys had been training. They were from Wyoming, went to Alaska for 30 days to survive. And uh, as they were on day 26 of day 30, they're crossing a creek one by one, and a mama bear and her cub comes out and begins to maul these four teenagers. And the first two were just really critically injured And, uh, you know, the other two had to basically, they were also mauled, but they were the better off. They ended up camping out for about eight hours, taking care until their beacon finally got the helicopter to come get them. But just reading of just this ferocious bear that with her cub just, you know, just went and took on four guys um, and mauled them. And so, you know, we've all heard stories like that of how intense 
bears are and how strong they are. I, it was on the radio that I heard them interview the worst off of all these boys. And he was just saying, you just can't believe the strength of this animal. I mean, you just can't even begin to try to defend yourself against her. Just so powerful and so intense. Um, but we read that um, it, this bear is raised up on one side. And you guys will have to go home and do like a Google image search of Daniel chapter 7 or something. And, you know, or get, get looking at some of these pictures because they're quite incredible. Um, this bear raised up on one side. In the next chapter, Daniel chapter 8, we're going to read of a ram and, and these horns and how one horn is stronger than another. And what it's speaking of is it was the Medo-Persian Empire, two, two kingdoms. Uh, and one started out strong, but then the other empire, the Persian Empire, would become even stronger. So most believe it's a symbol of one half of this bear is actually stronger than the other. It's going to be, become more of the ruler there. Uh, but this bear had um, three ribs in its mouth uh, between its teeth. And just kind of picture just some spare ribs going from one side uh, to the other. Uh, just picture me on a Friday night uh, over there at Tony's or whatever. <laughs> you know, I like me some ribs. But um, these ribs, most believe, speak of the kingdoms that uh, the Medes and the Persians had conquered. Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. And then the, they said, rise and devour much flesh. And and uh, probably speaking of the, the authority there in heaven. Um, and, and, you know, it's been known, too, that the Medes and the Persians had little regard for human life. And they would have um, a couple million man army that would just go out and, like a big bear, just kind of lumber along and just destroy everything uh, in her path until the third beast came along uh, who would actually conquer her. And that third beast is in verse 6. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Uh, So this third beast would just be the next in line, the belly and thighs of bronze, symbolizing the Grecian Empire led by Alexander the Great. Uh, Symbolized as a leopard, Alexander's army was just quick and agile. He had about 36,000 men in his army, and he would go and just with speed take out this big bear of the Persian army um, with, you know, against 2 million uh, or more. And so just kind of that, you know, the little quick guy taking out the big slow guy, and great was that big guy's fall. But uh, we see that she had uh, four bird-like wings, Speaking of speed, but also probably these four generals that led with Alexander the Great, and also four heads uh, who symbolized the generals who took over after Alexander the Great died. Uh, They split Greece into four parts. Um, So they were given power there with their skill and their strategy. And in less than three years, they'd conquer the then known world. So that's uh, beast number three. Then verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So next in line, hopefully you're getting it by now, next at the bottom of the statue with the legs of iron, 
were the Romans that came and took over. 146 BC was when they took over, and they ruled for about 600 years till about 476 AD. <coughs> Excuse me. They were the legs of iron in that statue. You know, they were uh, stronger and longer than any of the other previous kingdoms who ruled over Israel. Uh, it was this beast that was dreadful, which speaks of it, it causes you to slink back from fear. It was terrible, which speaks of burliness and mighty. Um, Daniel, you know, the guy who was going to spend a night with the lions, is just terrified by this thing because it was exceedingly strong. You read there in verse 7. With her iron teeth, uh, just going back to the legs of iron, just total strength. And you can just picture just this thing just mauling and ravaging all other kingdoms, just devouring and breaking in pieces and just, you know, chunks of, of flesh going everywhere as this dreadful beast just tears apart. And then we see just tramples and uh, with the residue under its feet. Uh, and there was something different about it. Something different about it, you know. Uh, most of the pictures you'll look at, you know, you've got a lion, and, you know, it's, it's a lion. We all recognize it, you know. And, and then there's a bear, and, you know, they kind of look similar. And then there's a leopard, you know. And then there's this other thing, you know. It's got metallic teeth, you know. It's just this crazy beast that, you know, most pictures guys are like, I'm going to take a picture of like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, and put 10 horns on its head. And that's like, you know, you could probably picture Daniel just freaked out by this thing. It makes anything from Jurassic Park just look like a little kitty cat, you know. It's just dreadful and terrible. And uh, you see, you know, Rome, similar to that, had a lust for blood, would just, you know, invent just horrible ways of, of torture, like crucifixion, which means it comes out of the word excruciating. Uh, you know, they would invent the gladiators and the human torches and, and just a, a terrible um, empire as they would conquer the world. They just trample residue of people under her feet. But verse 8 says, I was considering these ten horns that were on uh, this fourth beast's head, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by their roots. And there in this horn were eyes like that of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, we've all had dreams, right, that are just freaky deaky or weird or, you know, really, it's like you ate something weird that night, you know. And that's this dream. It's weird, right? It's, it's totally something out of the norm. And, you know, you might just take your pen and kind of draw, man, this is what, this is what he was seeing. You know, he sees 10 horns on this dreadful, terrible beast. And then this little horn comes up and just plucks out three other horns as it comes up. You know, just a graphic picture. And then this little horn uh, has eyeballs, you know, and it has a mouth. I mean, odd picture, right? Just odd vision that he's having. And yes, as you look at the pictures online, you're like, oh, this is just odd. It's weird. It's like some Disney movie of you know, Mickey dressed in a sorcerer's cap and he's making mop buckets dance and all that, you know. And, and here we have a horn talking and eyeballs and, and uh, plucking out the other three. And uh, it, it had a mouth that would speak or speak pompous words. Now, these ten horns also have a place within the kingdom. Uh, these ten horns speak of the revived Roman Empire. We go back to Nebuchadnezzar's vision, vision that on the bottom, underneath the legs of iron, there were these feet 
that were partly mixed with clay and partly mixed with iron. And they had 10 toes. And each one of those toes was a symbol of a king. And so, you know, Bible prophecy is not that hard to understand if you look at it amongst the rest of scriptures, you know. So here's 10 horns. We're going to know there are 10 kings. And one horn's going to come up and pluck three of these out. And he's going to have a big mouth on him. You know, he's going to just speak these pompous words, these prideful words. Now, as we've looked at, at uh, Daniel chapter 2 and here in chapter 7, and we're going to see it more in the, in the weeks to come, you begin to wonder why are just these five countries mentioned? You know, why not Germany? She became a huge superpower, especially in the 19th century. Why not America? I mean, we're pretty much ruling the world right now, kind of, in different ways we are, I guess. Um, you know, why not Japan or China? Um, but we, we want to know, when it's concerning Bible prophecy, uh, the prophecy revolves around God's prophetic timepiece, who is the nation of Israel, Okay. Um, so these four empires or five empires, they all came within the time frame that Israel was a nation. And some of you've gotten to see the, the coming of that again within your lifetime. If you were born before 1948, then you've been alive for a spectacular event. Most of us know back in 70 AD, Rome was coming in heavy-handed, even harder against Israel. And Titus, the general, came in. We all know that he was destroying Rome, and he commanded the temple not to be destroyed. But, you know, a, a flaming torch was tossed in there, melted all the gold in the temple, billions of dollars worth of gold. And so he had to tear down every stone in the temple and fulfill Jesus' prophecy that not one stone of the temple would remain upon another. That prophecy was fulfilled there in 70 AD, as Rome came in heavy-handed against Israel. Ten years later, uh, a general named Hadrian came down and basically finished the job against the Jews, and he exterminated 650,000 Jews in just 144 days. Uh, he hated Israel and destroyed Israel so badly that that's when he named Israel Palestine, which actually means Philistine country. You know, those were the enemies of Israel throughout the Old Testament. He hated Israel so much, he said, we're going to call this nation something else. Your enemy's name, the Philistine country. And it was at that point that if two Jews, if two Jews were caught speaking to each other in Palestine, they'd be executed. Most of us have heard of Gamla or Masada there in Israel. And those are two different strongholds where Jews would run to and, and hide from the Romans. I've been to both of these places. And uh, Masada was basically built upon uh, just a giant cliff. There was one way up. It was a path. And it was, a Herod, uh, it was Herod's palace. And some Jews went, took over one of Herod's palaces there in Masada and set up a barricade. And the Romans camped out down there for over a year. Excuse me, fighting a bit of a cold. While the Jews that were hiding camped out on top of this giant cliff. And, you know, they were set to go up there. There were storehouses of Herod's food. There were cisterns where they could get fresh water. And, uh, you know, there was no way for the Romans to get up there. And so the Romans just barricaded and, and, until finally one of the generals got an idea. Why don't we use Jewish slaves to build a giant ramp up this huge cliff? 
because the Jews won't kill their own people. That's how we'll get up there and get them. And so over in the next few years, Jewish slaves were used to build this giant dirt ramp up to the top of Masada until finally they were able to bring up their battering ramps and go right up this thing and beat down the walls of Masada. Right when they were about one night away from destroying it, the Jews inside said, look, we know what Hadrian has done to the Jews over the last few years. We know what Titus did to Jerusalem. We're not going to go out that way. We'd rather die than become slaves. And so here's what happened. Every dad went home to his house, killed his family, and then 13 Jewish men were nominated to kill all of the other men. And then finally, one of those men killed every one of those 13 and then killed himself. And so when the Romans tore the wall down and they came inside Masada, everyone was dead there except for one woman and a couple of kids were found hiding. That was Masada. North up in Galilee, that's just by the Dead Sea. It overlooks the Dead Sea. North up in Galilee is Gomla. It's a similar place, not quite as high of a cliff, but there was only one way to get down this cliff and up to a peak where Gomla was. There's a synagogue there. It's believed that Jesus spoke in that synagogue. And the uh, Jews hid out there. And to this day, they have, they've made uh, Roman archery catapults and all of that to, to show what happened there. The battering ram had come and tore down the wall, and the wall is exactly as it was when the Romans tore through that wall. And as you go in there, you walk up to the top of this pointed pinnacle of a cliff, and it was there that the entire city of hiding Jews cast themselves off of this cliff. Better to die than to uh, be falling again into the hands of the Romans and to be their slaves. So just a little bit of the history of what was going on in that time. The Jews ended up, the finally remaining Jews fled out of Israel. And by 80 80 AD, Israel had ceased uh, to be a nation entirely. Um, Of course, the the, uh, bloodline continued. So at that point, the prophetic timepiece had stopped and the prophetic uh, biblical view stopped as well. And uh, Isaiah chapter 66 says this, it says, Can a nation be born in a day? Can a nation be born in a day? And it, it was. Israel was born in a day once again. On May 14th, 1948, a, mis- uh, a miracle took place when Israel uh, became a nation literally in a day. It's never happened before. It'll never happen uh, after. And so uh, Israel became a nation again. Wonderful history, a miracle there. And, um, and so from that point on, the timepiece starts again, and we have some cool timeline things that have happened since. In April 1948, there was a Council of World Churches formed. It was a religious system that we're going to see come to fruition in the end times. We read about it in Revelation. In 1946, Basel, Switzerland, uh, had a man there named Winston Churchill who was sleeping much like Daniel, and he had a dream that there would be a United States of Europe. And so he went out and he spoke about this dream, and by 1948, there were five nations who heard from Winston this call to make a a United States, and they came together. And uh, by 1948, you had Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Uh, France and the United Kingdom signed this treaty of Brussels. It's called the Club of Rome. Okay, so the Club of Rome uh, was formed, and that kind of started the birth of 
the feet partly mixed of iron, partly mixed of clay, or this beast that has the ten horns. In 1948, we began to see those ten horns formed there. In 1957, after several other meetings, five nations joined six other nations in a meeting in Rome to start the Treaty of Rome, which called for the rebuilding and the restoration of the Roman institution. So five nations with six other nations came together. They signed the Treaty of Rome. It was called the Common Market or also known as the Big Ten because they believed eventually it would be ten nations that would, that would come together. It would just totally be ten nations when the end of all the, um, the mediations and the deliberations uh, were finished. So it was in your Italy where all these nations came together. They signed all of these things. And uh, to this day, it's kind of the center of the Treaty of Rome or the Club of Rome and um, also known as uh, the European Union. So in 1982, the 10th nation was added to the European Union. Now there's over 26. I think there's actually 28. Um, But the European Union flag has 12 stars on it. And we just know Bible prophecy. By the end of it all, there will be 10 nations. And uh, Newsweek had an article a few years ago celebrating um, Eurolands first coming together since the Roman Empire. And to this day, the European Union all coming together, uh, they either have or they desire to have a unified currency, which they have, um, an, an obliteration of passports. You can now travel from country to country within this European Union, uh, common foreign policy, common military, and even a constitution has been drafted. So just gives us a little bit of an idea of the possibility of this 10 nation, you know, feet or head, you know, with the, the, the thorns or the horns coming up, uh, actually taking place. So, but we see this little horn in verse eight, it comes up, plucks out three by their roots, has eyes of a man and has mouth speaking pompous or domineering words. Now, this pompous little man is known in scripture by a lot of different names. He's known as the little horn. Nobody likes to be called that. Um, The prince who is to come at Daniel chapter nine calls him that Genesis calls him the seed of the serpent who Jesus is going to crush or the despicable person, uh, the strong willed king, the man of sin or the son of perdition. He's known as the first horseman of the apocalypse or the conqueror of the first seal in Revelation 6. He's known as the beast out of the sea in Revelation 13. And we mostly know him as the Antichrist. And, uh, and so as we read um, this, uh, just it's interesting to keep that in mind, this little horn being the Antichrist, uh, the little horn. Verse 9 tells us, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Um, So the thrones that we read of in verse 9, possibly speaking of the thrones that the nations rule on, the saints rule on for a thousand years during the millennial reign in Revelation chapter 20. But we read of the Ancient of Days there in verse 9. That means that this, this one who is seen has days without beginning. 
It's like Melchizedek that you read of in Genesis chapter 14, without beginning or end of days. We see his garments are white, his hair is white like wool, throne has a fiery flame, and its wheels of burning fire. Does this sound familiar to anybody from what we've read in Scripture? Like Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus is seen in his glorified state. Now, I actually think we're seeing a picture of the Father here, okay, um, in verse 9. But just interesting to notice that the Son in Revelation 1 appears much in the same way, wearing a white garment down to his feet. He has hair that are white and pure like wool. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Just this similar um, prophetic dream and vision here. Um, But we see that uh, there's wheels of burning fire on your own time, because we don't have time tonight. I encourage you to read Ezekiel chapter 10, where we read of around the throne are the cherubim, the angels that just day and night worship the Lord. Read about them in Revelation chapter 4 as well, in Isaiah, I believe, chapter 6. But these uh, cherubim, these angels, um, man, they're just, they got wings and they got eyes all over and day and night they cry out. And Ezekiel's vision tells, them that, tells us that when they fly and when they worship, they're like these wheels with lights all around them. And they're just, just buzzing all around the throne of God, just worshiping and the glory and just the vision that Ezekiel sees it. Just, I was reading about it while I had Pandora radio going on in my office and I, there was just worship going on and I'm reading this. I'm like, I was like there with the angels in the throne room of God, just having a great time worshiping today worshiping the ancient of days i'm like man there's not enough songs with that term ancient of days you know it's it just kind of go back to the old school oh ancient of days you know i don't even know that whole song but starfield came on while i was worshiping and they sang about uh, the ancient of days uh, by this holy god this song that they sang so i was blessed today worshiping uh this throne uh, at the throne where there's a fiery flame and these wheels probably speaking of those angels those cherubim whose job it is to worship before the throne night and day says a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him a thousand thousands ministered to him ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him the court was seated and the books were open so you know over a million people worshiping or million angels worshiping here uh, we see in revelation chapter 5 again a similar vision and you might just flip over to revelation because we're going to be going back and forth just keep a pen or something over there in revelation chapter 5 verse 11 where it says then i looked and i heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I, I love that description there because it's speaking of a billion and millions and millions. That's how many angels there are around the throne right now worshiping the Lord. And uh, it says that they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's just incredible worship taking place there with the four living creatures shouting out blessing honor glory and power be to him who's on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever then the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever so sweet worship ceremony that uh or service that daniel is kind of let in on there as he sees the ancient of days excuse me seated he says the courts were also seated 
and the books were opened. What Daniel sees taking place is judgments beginning to happen. We've read this in Revelation 20, haven't we, at the great white throne judgment where when he was seated, the Ancient of Days, heaven and earth fled away and it says that standing before God were the dead, all the small and all the great dead. And it says, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And we all know it. We've read it. Judgment took place there as these books were opened. So what Daniel's getting a glimpse of is uh, judgment happening there in the throne room of God. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before them. So we're just seeing like the end times beginning to unfold before Daniel here. We're seeing the you know, kind of the Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and verses 9 and 10 here, where it's the throne room of God. And uh, we're seeing like chapter 5 of Revelation take place in verse 13. As the Son of Man comes out um, with the clouds of heaven there, and he comes to the ancient days, and, and they brought him near before him. So the Son of Man here, it's speaking of uh, Jesus in the gospel Jesus refers to himself as the son of man more than any other title. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, it says, the high priest said to Jesus during his trial, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you'll you'll see the son of man sitting on the right hand of the power And coming in the clouds of heaven, then the high priest tore his clothes, saying he's spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he's deserving of death. So by Jesus saying, I'm the son of man, and I'm going to fulfill Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I'm going to come from the right hand of the Father in power and glory. I'm going to come in the clouds. I'm coming back is what he's saying. Speaking of the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation, Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he's coming in the clouds. Every eye is going to see him, even those that pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn for him. Even so, amen. Coming in clouds could be speaking of uh, coming with the other saints, as Hebrews chapter 12 says, speaks of a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And Jude tells us, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands and ten thousands of his saints at the second coming. So um, kind of what's happening there is just that setup of the end times. And, um, and we see that he came to the Father. And uh, you guys remember in Revelation chapter 5, where the Father is holding a scroll in his hand, and it has seven seals on it, and that scroll has writing on the inside and on the back, and they looked around for anyone who was worthy to open the scroll up, and it says that no one was found worthy, whether in heaven or above heaven or under the heaven or under the earth, no one was found worthy to open the scroll, and, and, and John fell down and began to cry because no one was worthy to open the scroll, and then an angel, or maybe it was an elder, touched him and said, wait, look, 
this guy's worthy to open the scroll. And here comes the son of man. Only this time, this prophet doesn't see him as the son of man. What does he see him as? A lamb who'd been slain. A lamb who'd been slain. And that one who'd been slain was the only one that was worthy to take the scroll out of the father's hand and to open it up, to open up those series of events that would then begin the great tribulation. So uh, I think that's kind of what we're seeing here, just the throne room of God with Jesus there in glory and, and kind of the beginning of the great tribulation there. Verse 14, then to him, to the son of man, to Jesus was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so out of all of these kingdoms that we've seen, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and then even the revived Roman Empire, it's during that revived Roman Empire time that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to destroy all of those other thrones and dominions. He's going to crush them. He's going to pulverize them. And then he's going to set his whole kingdom up on this earth for a thousand years. That is an incredible thing. I cannot wait till that day when even, you know, just Prineville sees the glory of the Lord because Jesus is ruling over, over the world. But uh, what a, a glorious thing that's shown here that every tribe and tongue and nation is going to be ruled by him. Psalm 2 speaks of that, that uh, the nations are going to be his inheritance. And the farthest end of the earth is going to be Jesus's possessions. He's going to break all the other kingdoms with a rod of iron, Psalm 2 says, and dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. Revelation chapter 5 verse 11, we see that before the Lord in glory are people from every tribe and tongue and nation. His dominion there, it's an everlasting dominion. So much to speak of on that, but Peter tells us that this everlasting kingdom, that it's of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So bottom line of the whole story of end prophecy is Jesus wins. You know, God wins and you know, it's landslide. It's just, he just totally, radically has the victory and conquers them with the sword of his mouth. We read in Revelation chapter 19. They just don't even stand a chance against him when he comes back to the world. <clears throat> Verse 15, we have the interpretation of Daniel's vision. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And I have in my notes here, as I was studying today, why was he grieved in his spirit? Why was he so troubled by this? I mean, doesn't it end good or doesn't even, you know, doesn't it seem to end good if it was your dream and you saw the ancient of days in glory and the cherubim worshiping and the son of man coming and setting up his kingdom? I mean, doesn't that seem like a great ending to the dream? Why does it, why would it trouble you to have that dream? We're going to get to it later in verse 28, but it's just, I didn't even answer that question in my notes. It's just right here. Why? Why was he troubled? Why was he vexed and grieved within his spirit? And ask yourself that. Why would you be troubled? Verse 16, so I came near to one of those who stood by me and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So perhaps it's Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego here that's, that's 
going to give him the interpretation. We see in chapter 2 that they were part of the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It seems, though, that he's actually kind of still in the midst of the dream here, and that he's actually going to get the interpretation of the dream within the dream. It's in uh, chapters 8 and 9 that we see that actually Gabriel, the angel, gives interpretations and understanding to dreams. So, you know, perhaps that's who it was. Not a big deal, but in the next couple chapters, we'll see it was Gabriel. And so he says, verse 17, here's the interpretation. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. So you start, you know, your mind wants to explode when you read about all these funky beasts and you have no clue what they might be. You just got to read the Bible because so often the interpretation's right there for you. I mean, how many of you have started Revelation chapter 1 and you're reading about lampstands and Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands and he's got seven stars in his hands and you're just about to, you know, blow a gasket. But when you get to the end of chapter 1, he says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches in Asia that he's going to write the letters to. And the seven stars are the seven angels of those churches, you know, it's like, oh, okay. You know, we just got to, can't give up. Okay, don't give up. Just keep reading, keep plowing. Keep studying. So we know that these great beasts are four kings, which arise out of the earth. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. The ten horns that were upon its head and the other horn which came up before the three, but before which three fell, namely that horn which has eyes and a mouth which speaks pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. So uh, verse 18 tells us that the saints are going to come and they're going to receive and they're going to possess the kingdom. We read about this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes back, he's going to set up his kingdom, and the saints are going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. But Daniel says, that's great, but I want to know about this gnarly beast. You know, I want to know about this brawny guy, you know, this brawny, funky beast that's unlike any of the others. What is the deal with this thing with ten horns? and It's got these claws of bronze, and it just mashes uh, things together. Um, verse, you know, 21 tells us that... Uh, it's as he's watching the same horde was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the ancient of days comes. So what is with this beast that's just hurting and crushing the saints? And it's speaking of Jewish uh, believers. It's speaking of the Jews. And it's also speaking of those that will get saved in the tribulation time that are going to have war made against it. Now, if you'll flip over to Revelation chapter 13, as you do, let's just get a quick eschatology overview, okay? And this is one opinion. This is my opinion. I feel it fits best scripturally. But as we study at the Olivet Discourse, there's a lot of guys that love Jesus that hold to a different position than me. So I'm not dogmatic on it. I feel that this is the best, um, the best outline for end times, and that is this. That, um, you know, Jesus right now, he's up in, in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's praying for us. And one day is going to come where it's going to be the end of the church age. 
and Jesus is going to rapture the church. He's going to catch the church up to meet him in the clouds uh, with him. And we're going to, and before we get caught up, all of the bodies of those that have died before us that are in Christ, all of the bodies are going to be risen out of the ground and they're going to meet their, you know, their owners up in the air and then split second after that in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be called up and we're going to meet all of our brothers and sisters who've gone before us. We're going to meet them in the air with Jesus. I believe you read about that. The first verse of Revelation chapter four, the church age is over. And then you see the a door open in heaven and a voice that says, come up here. I believe that's a picture of the rapture. As we come up there, we're in the throne room of heaven. We get to see the elders, which are a representation of the church, bowing down, worshiping before the throne, kind of having this sweet honeymoon of, in heaven with the Lord as his bride. And during that time, down here on earth for seven years, the tribulation is taking place. It's a time of God pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. You're going to see natural disasters and all sorts of those things. But at the beginning of the tribulation, Antichrist is going to come on the scene, the little horn. He's going to speak great and pompous words, and he's going to make a covenant with many for seven years, okay? Halfway through that time, as he's rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, three and a half years go by, and he's going to stand up in the temple. He's going to bring an end to sacrifice and offerings, and he's going to declare himself to be God and demand to be worshiped as such. At that point, um, the Jews are going to say, wait a second, something's wrong. It's all going to end up making sense to them, and they're going to run away from the Antichrist into the wilderness where he's going to persecute him and try to kill them. And it's then, halfway through the tribulation period, that the great tribulation takes place. It's way worse than the first half. It's the great tribulation. And for three and a half years, there's going to be Satan taking sucker punches like he never has before because he knows the time is short. And at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus is going to come back during the battle of Armageddon And he's going to basically conquer all of his enemies. He's going to conquer Satan. He's going to conquer um, the Antichrist and the false prophet. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's going to usher in the millennium, which is a 1,000-year period where he rules on the world. And we, by his grace, get to rule and reign with him. After a 1,000 years is up, Satan's going to be released out of the bottomless pit. He's going to try to lead a rebellion, but uh, it's not going to go very far. Jesus just lickety-split wipes them out, and throws Satan back into hell forever and ever and ever, okay? So that's just a basic overview of what happens in the tribulation. Obviously, it's very basic and doesn't go into it much. But what we see in verse 21 is we see that the little horn makes war against the saints. And that takes place at the middle of the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 John says, I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven horns and uh, seven heads and ten horns, and on his horn, ten crowns, and on his head, a blasphemous name. <clears throat> now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, Satan gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. I saw in one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? This is the Antichrist. 
He was given a mouth to speak great pompous things like the little horn and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months or three and a half years. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of, of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So we just see his rise and we see that he begins to uh, make war with the saints for 42 months or for three and a half years. <clears throat> until, verse 22 tells us, until the ancient of days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the most high. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Read about that in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back and says, it's time. It's time for the saints to possess the kingdom. And thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. Ten horns are are the ten kings who rise from these kingdoms, and another shall rise after them. It shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. It shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. So we see within the tribulation period, in actually chapter 12, that there's a war that happens in heaven. And Michael and his angels fight with the devil and his angels, and the devil's kicked out of heaven. No longer is he able to do what he did in the book of Job where he goes around and he tries to accuse the sons of men. He's kicked out of the throne room now and it says that he's so angry because he knows he has a little time that he just goes to town in persecuting Israel and persecuting her children. And so um, this Antichrist, he attempts to change laws and times and the calendar and everything. He just tries to change the whole world and I believe it's during that point that Christians uh, and, and Jews will be martyred um, like crazy in a way never seen before because he's changing all the laws that the world has ever known. Other, you know, anything goes that he wants to have go. So it's going to be a horrible time, a horrible, horrible time. And I think that's why um, this vision greatly troubles Daniel because it's such a horrible time. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says it's a time of trial that the world's never known and never will know after it. It's Jacob's trial. And he says this, Jesus himself says that unless I stopped it, no flesh would survive. That's how bad it is. Between the natural disasters and then the antichrist rule of terror, unless I stopped it, no flesh would survive. And so I think Daniel's just getting a a picture of the gravity of this, this tribulation period that we read of here. And yes, it's amazing that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, but it, it's just going to be a horrible, horrible time that we don't want to see any of our relatives or our friends go through. So man, we should be laboring in prayer for them, and we should be just so open-mouthed about the gospel that, that we could tell them about the hope that is in Jesus goes on to say, and remember, you just know at the end of verse 25 that um, the saints will be given into his hand to be persecuted for a time and times and half a time. That's a 
common phrase in the book of Revelation. It means three and a half years. It's that second half of the tribulation. But, verse 26, the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it forever. Judgment takes place. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and shall obey him. Um, this is the end of the account. As for me, as for Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And man, as we have the understanding of accuracy of prophecies fulfilled in the past and the prophecies that are going to be fulfilled in the future, may we not just flippantly read through these and then toss it aside, but may the Lord plant them in our heart knowing that, man, there's going to be another holocaust one day. You know, there's going to be just time that the world has never seen before and real people are going to be going through this, this time of God's wrath because they've rejected Christ. May we be able to say like Paul did in Acts chapter 20, hey, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Everyone that I came across, I told them about Jesus. I told them about the lamb who'd been slain for their sins, that if they would just believe in him, they wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. I told them about the ancient of days and the son of man who, who came and died and rose again and is going to reign in victory one day. I told them, and some believed, some heard the gospel, and some repented of their sin. And praise God, they won't go through this time. And others rejected, but we were faithful to the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. We opened our mouths about the gospel, that we could be innocent of their blood. <clears throat> and just as Daniel carried these things with him, and the next chapter it ends very similarly, that, you know, even more, I don't want to ruin it, but he just carries these dreams on him. Such a serious thing to be, you know, to, to be given the knowledge of what's going to happen. I mean, the Lord just give us that fresh vision tonight as we go back out into the world. So many of you work with non-believers. May you just have in front of you that God wins. God wins. That's something to rejoice about. That's something to open our mouth about. May we have before us that God judges sin. May we have before us that the Son of Man was slain, that sinful man could be forgiven. And may we have before us that he's coming back, he's going to rule, and by his grace, he's sharing his inheritance with us, that we will rule and reign with him. So much to worship about, so much to praise God about, so much to have terror about. You know, I was thinking about Russell came in as I was studying and he jumped on my lap, and gave me a big hug and a big kiss. And I was just like, oh, Lord. And he goes, are we going to the chapel tonight? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm so excited. I go, well, why are you excited? Because I love the chapel. The chapel is the best, you know. I'm so blessed. Like, yes, the house of the Lord. Russell, I love that you love to come here. I was just praying, Lord, just let his, all his life May he love you. May he love your people. May he love fellowship. And then I got thinking about his kids and his kids' kids, you know. You know, if, if the Rogers keep populating, you know, um, 
my generation and your generation, they're going to either experience the rapture or they're going to experience the tribulation. One or the other. But Lord, help us to be like Joshua. Say, for as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And may that be transposed to them and that their houses will serve the Lord. And that, gosh, our family lines will be witnesses of Jesus. And that they won't have to go through this as well. Just getting a little picture of why there was that holy terror in Daniel's heart. I think that's what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Stuart back there? All right, hey, buddy. You want to come and uh, close us in a song? We can put our Bibles aside. and <clears throat> Why don't we go ahead and stand tonight? You know, when we get into these parts of the book of Daniel, it's just, it's so easy to just become kind of information saturated and just be like, well, you know, in 1947, you know, the uh, European Union voted together and blah, 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 you know, and blah, 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 you know, and it's all cool and it's all great. And it is good for us to, to hear about and to see. And we just get to like, you know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they had all the signs in front of them, but they weren't heeding those signs. And so it's good for us. But we want to have more tonight than just an imparting of information and an imparting of knowledge. You know, we want to have the Lord infuse into us the truth of the gospel. You know, we see just sin in this chapter, and we see the, the, the payment for sin and the, uh, the judgment on a sinful world, and we see the victory of the one who never sinned. I mean, we want to just be just saturated in the gospel, you know, that we could walk in victory with Jesus one day as well. We see him on his throne, and, and uh, Lord Jesus, just as we do, see you on your throne. You're the king of kings. You set up kingdoms. You tear them down. Lord, yours is an everlasting kingdom, and we want to be a part of it, Lord. We want to be on your side. We want to repent of our sin. We don't want to stand in judgment of our sin, but Lord, we're so thankful, Jesus, you were judged for us as you took our sin upon you. We repent, Lord, of the compromise, of the willful sinning. We repent of the idols. And Lord, we know before the Antichrist comes, there's, there's a lot of Antichrists in the world today, little false Christs that bring about persecution. And Lord, we, we pray that your spirit would give us the power to stand in the midst of persecution Lord, we just look to the future. We look to you winning. We just say, even so, Lord, come quickly. That'll be so soon, Lord. We know you're long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But Lord, we still just cry out like John in the book of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus. Spirit and the bride say, come. We say, come tonight. Let's close in worship. And maybe, Rich, if you could just go let children's ministry out and they can come in and close with worship.